We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Tiffany R. Warren, Senior VP, Chief Diversity Officer with Omnicom Group and founder and president of AdColor. Let's jump in and get to know Tiffany. Tiffany, how are you? Welcome. I am so good. It's scary. We love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're so happy you're hanging out with us yeah. Yeah, and delighted that you're here. For our listeners that may not know you, tell us a little bit about what you're doing for work these days. That's such a fun question. Such a fun question. What I'm currently doing is I am the Senior VP uh, Chief Diversity Officer for Omnicom Group. And when I saw fit in 2005, I launched AdColor, which is a not-for-profit that celebrates the achievements and honors the paths that have been paved by people of color in advertising, marketing, and media, and now tech, entertainment, and very soon music. That's awesome. I want to circle back a little bit later to your awesome career path. You've worked from sure. some fantastic uh, organizations, and I want to touch on ad color a little bit more too. But can you tell us a little bit about Tiffany R. Warren growing up? You know, where were you born? Where were you okay. raised? Okay, so little Tiffany. I was born and raised in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And I always make this, it's not even a disclaimer, it's just so people understand geographically where I was born. I was born in Roxbury, which is the home of New Edition, my favorite band in the whole world. Nice. Fun fact, my dad was one of three very big families in the Orchard Park Projects and grew up alongside the Browns and hence Bobby Brown. Mm. And then the Tylers, which married into another family, which eventually my godmother married a Tyler. So there's this crazy connection to Orchard Park Projects And it's very much a part of my history, but I was born a little ways from Orchard Park and I grew up Catholic. Yes, Black Catholic in Boston, Massachusetts, shock. And my family was very much Caribbean in some ways and very, very much, you know, African-American. And I say that because I grew up with both of those influences. My grandmother, well, her family came from St. Lucia and Montserrat. And my grandfather on my mother's side came from St. Louis, not St. Lucia. And then my dad's family is from North Carolina. So all those influences um, I grew up with. But Boston is where I called home for many, many years. All of those influences. How did that impact you today? Like when you think about it and you draw back, like how did that influence you and impact you? Yeah, I had a chance to talk about it the other day in saying that someone said, oh, Boston is racist. That's the first thing people say when I say that I grew up in Boston. But I was blessed to grow up in an area that had Cape Verdean, African-American, Haitian, Puerto Rican, and all those influences. So I grew up in a very diverse environment. And Roxbury is very diverse in general, at least when I was growing up. So I was shielded for the most part from sort of that myth of Boston. I only came in contact with that very mildly from an educational standpoint when I matriculated you know, at a private school and not necessarily within the private school, but because I went to private school, I was met with, who do you think you are? You know, those kind of things, those influences of like, what makes you feel special? How did you get in that school? And that's when I first came in contact with this idea that I've been separated somewhat because of my educational opportunities, but yet trying to understand why there was backlash for that when I was working hard to achieve Mm -hmm. success 
through my education. So yeah, the influences were real. So growing up in a community where culture was literally king, what people ate, how they interacted with each other, what music they listened to, what family traditions were all mixed up and mismatched, but at the same time respected in separate lanes. So I had that influence of understanding the beauty of coming together, but also maintaining and honoring, you know, your culture, wherever you came from. And that, that came to me in my teens. From your teens, you go to school at some point. How did you transition into your career path and getting started down, you know, sort of that, that path and eventually working at some great companies? Yeah, I tell parents all the time, like your kids show you who they are. You know, I showed my mom who I was from the time I was in Head Start. <laughs> so when I look back at the, because you get progress reports, that's what they give you when you're an inner city child that goes mm. Head Start. Mm-hmm. So you get these progress reports where they're like, Tip knows how to identify a circle. Mm. She loves story time. And then there'll be like this creepy psychological part of the progress report. And it'll be like, uh, Tiffany um, likes to be the voice for the voiceless. I'm like, who puts that in a progress report for like a two and a half, three-year-old? Mm. But when I started like really pursuing DE&I, I go back to that progress report and it makes me emotional because I showed everybody who I was then. And so most people don't get that gift of finding like their North Star or their passion. Sometimes they never receive it. And I got it super early. And my mom just nurtured it. And my community nurtured it. And my friends nurtured it. So this path of like really digging into the discipline of DE&I, I did it for so long without a title that it made it almost like there was no question. This is what I was going to do for the rest of my life even. And Tiffany, I'm curious to understand and learn from you how ad color came about. Like where where did that idea come from and, and how did that get started? Yeah, it came from my time running the 4A's multicultural advertising intern program. So I had this long, blissful run of supporting the future of this business. I mean, the excitement, their energy was infectious. And one year, I had them do a yearbook every year. And one year they put together a yearbook and they created a black and white cover of ad week and and took out week and put color. (laughs) And I was like, and it was, it was like, it could have been a throwaway. You know, I respectfully asked them, I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I think there's something there. And so when I left the four A's and I, I went to Arnold, part of my offer letter, I said, I have to launch this award show. They looked at me crazy. But I had such belief in the vision that was placed in me. And that's kind of how Ad Color was born. And then, you know, there's other steps that were taken to launch it. But that's essentially where the idea, you know, came from, from this incredible group of young interns who saw a future for themselves that at the time felt really far away, but they had no idea how close it was. Gotcha, gotcha. And and obviously, this year, planning Ad Color was unlike any year previously. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the experience of planning Ad Color this year, not only as a virtual event, but with everything else kind of going on in, in the world. What was the experience like in terms of putting together the event this year? Yeah, like legit for two months, I was like that person that didn't get off their couch and didn't want to do anything. I give a, a huge shout out to my board. I give a huge shout out to the advisory board, to my team, Chriselli, Anna, and the incredible 
you know, diverse team that we have that was like, we're going to let you finish, but we need to get started. (laughs) So, you know, I stopped feeling sorry for myself. I was like, I can't pivot. I don't know. Like, this is too much. I'm just trying to stay healthy, you know, like real world stuff going on. And then George Floyd and then Brianna, it was like, and I was like, Mm -hmm. a virtual conference. And then I started straightening up my spine and said a virtual conference. And the way that I described it was like a cookout that I over-invited everybody to. Mm. (laughs) That's how I wanted it to feel. Like when people stepped into the virtual experience, I wanted them to feel like they were coming home, that they were listening to content that they could not find anywhere else. And if they did, it didn't come from a place of authenticity or community. I think when you start from a place of kindness and love and authenticity and, and community, the content that comes from that, you, it's just, you, there's no question. And so, you know, I picked speakers that inspired me, but I knew inspired others that gave me goosebumps. Tamika Mallory, you know, Gabrielle Union. These are people that are at the forefront of keeping it real. Mm-hmm. And what we needed as an industry were people to speak to us, speak for us, pour into us to give us the strength to continue this fight that each of us battle on a daily basis in our respective jobs and our respective agencies. That's the way you kind of spread out ad color and make it ad color everywhere is the sense that, you know, people will try to pinpoint and say, oh, ad color is just about advertising. Advertising was the starter industry and has been so instrumental in our growth, but we added like six other industries. And so I think ad color everywhere was a chance to show people like the breadth and depth of ad color. If they they didn't know because they weren't able to go physically in real life. Mm-hmm. The best compliment, and I was waiting for it, was like I was in the chat room, I was waiting for it, and it came. I was like, yes. The best compliment was like, Tiff, this chat room feels like the lobby of ad color. And that's to say that in that lobby, the conversations and the, the mentoring and the networking, you think about like we don't get a chance to do that anywhere in the industry at the level that ad color creates for people. And so Ad Color Everywhere introduced ad color, the concept, the feeling, the community. And now people go, aha, I get it. Because okay. it was always this struggle of trying to explain. And because we only had a certain amount of space, you know, you can only fit a certain amount of space in a ballroom. And, you know, you know how conferences work. And so it was always difficult because it felt like it was exclusionary, but that wasn't the case. It was just, we just didn't have the space. And so now we're always going to have some sort of hybrid where, it's going to be online and it's going to be in real life. Like we can't go back. Gotcha. Yeah. That was actually going to be my next question, which was what did you learn this year about the virtual event? What was successful that you will continue to incorporate even when we go back to Oh, everything. Oh, everything. Like creating the community and having 8,300 people sign up and then having 120,000 views and climbing. Like we ended the conference in September and we still we've amassed 40 extra thousand views because people are going back to like take in the content. You know, the fact that we had 54 partners this year who stayed by our side even when you know the world and you know COVID made it sometimes impossible because they had to consider jobs versus CSR. And we totally understood that. But having those partners come back. And then the way that our partners pour into us, you know, a Google, an Omnicom group, even, you know, Facebook, I mean, I can go down the list, Verizon Media, all these companies level us up in such a way that it's not just about partnership. It's about like, we're going to bring the best content we can to you because we know 
who's going to be watching it. And that makes us proud to be a partner even more. You know, Disney brought in an incredible conversation with some of their reporters. And these are some of my favorites that I always watch, but I saw them in a different light talking about diversity. And I was just like so impressed because obviously when they're reporting, you don't really get to hear their opinions. And so I think I'm using that example as the classic example of ad color. It's like you see per someone in one light, but when they're allowed the space to be authentic, you have a deeper respect. T.D. Jakes brought this whole conversation about faith in advertising. Who would have known to put those two together? Because as people of color, our, uh, our faith, however we express it, is very important to us. And some people often feel like they can't center that in the work that they do. And so he offered so many insights about A, how to do that, and, and also just to be proud of it, whatever faith you follow. Tiffany, I want to ask you about your experience and uh, a little bit about the past. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe when you've handled issues of discrimination? We've all faced them. How did you handle those situations in the past? Tell us a little bit about that. So for me, a a big thing that I say is the education is is more important than the correction because the correction is short term. I can correct you for saying something out your mouth that's disrespectful. But the education of why that moment was not good, and I'm going to talk to you about why, and then we're going to talk about the next steps in the way forward, lasts longer than that temporary feeling of correction. And I know that's tough for people because the, the Route 95 they want to take is like, I want you to feel the pain that I just felt. I get it. But in order for me to exercise and become more disciplined in my role, I had to figure out a way to use those points and those moments, not just as teachable moments, which is a buzzword, but a moment that the person would take in professionally and personally. Mm. So it was about educating to the point where I'm going to change you personally. I'm going to try. Because often when you speak about DE&I, it goes down this avenue of sympathy. I want you to feel sorry for what I've gone through. I want you to feel sorry for people of color. I mean, just the conversations I've heard... It's just, it's mind-blowing. My whole center of being is creating empathy. When you create empathy, it leads to action. People had empathy for Breonna Taylor. They had empathy for George Floyd. And it literally changed the world. If we just sat there and had sympathy, nothing would have happened. We would have cried. We would have been upset, which is all amazing, which is all like appropriate emotions and a a way to sort of get to that, that place. But for me because I knew that this was going to be my career path, I had to find a tool to be more of an educator versus a corrector. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had many microaggressive moments. Even I, when, you know, just like in a funny way, people are like, but you're the Pope of diversity. No one ever discriminates against you. And I'm like, what? (laughs) It's like being a DEI officer or director removes the blackness, removes the fact that I'm a woman. I'm like, what? For some reason, the universe completely magnetizes me. And I probably have more of those moments. Because either the universe knows that I can handle it. But I often hear people say, you're good. That stuff doesn't happen to you. You're you're above that. And I'm like, not even close. I wouldn't even have the well of empathy that I have for people in a junior position or when there's wholesale discrimination, which, you know, I have to say as a DEI professional, when you work for a big company or you have a remit for a global company, you won't be able to see everything, you know, so communication is important. So 
I actually rely heavily on being contacted. And I learn from those conversations and I learn from those incidents, but I have plenty of my own, trust me. Tiffany, you know, you have a chance to work with a lot of folks and, you know, I don't want to use just the word sort of mentor or, or mentees, but I call you know, them, I call, I'm a coach. Yeah. So what sort of advice can you pass on to folks who, who seek out, you know, coaching, you know, or, or need some, need some help across some of these issues? Often people come to me to be their mentor because they see the glossy side of what I do. So that's an instant no for me. Mm. Because if that's what you're pursuing, I'm not interested. But if you're pursuing, you know, and, and yes, my dance card is full, but, you know, I make room if there is, you know, a connection. I see, you know, often people say, I see myself in them. I actually, that's not how I choose, like, who's around me. I actually see your superpower before you see it. For some reason, I've been given that discernment. So you can have whatever trappings or outside, or you could be like flossing on Instagram and be like, but I actually can can hone in and pinpoint what I think your superpower is. So when people approach me, you know, I don't have like, you have to ask these 10 questions, but I just use my, my power of discernment. Because I think people will often ask, well, how do you pick a mentee? You have so many. I'm like, I'm okay with saying it's discernment. I'm okay with saying that. But I do think that, you know, what I tell coaches and I tell allies and I tell advocates and sponsors, because you know, the name changes every other week. Um, right. <laughs> I tell them when you, when you find that person's superpower, when you find that person's superpower, get out of their way. It's what I, I tell every new parent. When your kid is telling you exactly who they are, get out the way. Mm. I've often seen people lose that light, lose that spark because people are trying to manage and conform their superpower to what they think other people want, ignoring the voice inside of them that says, you should be an artist, not an account manager. Or you should be a photographer and not a producer, you know, at a tech company. I've had the honor to be around people who have made that switch because they've listened to their, to discernment. They've exercised that muscle of truly like listening to themselves and not others. And so that's my best piece of advice. When you come before a mentor, really, really know to some extent and listen to yourself about what you need. And then your mentors will come into your life and you will choose them. And then as a coach or a mentor, and all the 17 words that have now been associated with that yeah. job description, get out of people's way. Gotcha. Now, we are recording this on October 14th. You've had some big news today. We wouldn't be doing our, our job on the podcast if we didn't ask you about it. <laughs> and so just wanted to see if, uh, if Tiffany, if you'd be willing to, to tell us about the big news today and what the future holds for you. Oh, Corral. Um, the big news is that I've accepted a position to be the first ever executive vice president in charge of diversity and inclusion at Sony Music Group. It's a big day. You got me on a big emotional day. I looked, at, I looked at our invite 20 times and I'm like, I don't know. Should I? <laughs> I let me go for a walk and think about it. <laughs> and I came back. I was like, I can't let the guy down. I can't oh, thank you. Um, but in all honesty, it is an emotional day because I've spent, you know, I, the stats I give is, you know, 23 years in advertising, half my career at Omnicom and one third of my life running ad help. Two of those will end and one of them will evolve and include music. And I'm excited about bringing together music, advertising, tech. I mean, it's just going to be a, an, an 
completely beautiful com uh, community. And certainly there are communities like that everywhere. But I do think that music has been on the periphery of this conversation. And they need to be either close to the center or in the center because music plays such a pivotal role in our lives. We know that. There's no denying how important music is, you know, in our lives. When you think about watching a TV show, like I'm obsessed, and that's a, probably a whole other podcast, but I'm obsessed with Lovecraft Country. And the role that music plays in, in that narrative, it's just, it takes my breath away. Mm -hmm. And then you think about like how music has been the soundtrack for civil rights movement. When a song comes on, it immediately takes you back to a time and place. And just even in your own personal life, you know, you think of a song that maybe your grandmother played years ago and it plays randomly in a store and you're right back being that seven-year-old in your grandmother's bedroom. So the power of music is real and I'm honored, like super honored. And in the same vein, I was honored to be, you know, one of the first chief diversity officers for the industry. I'm honored to join, you know, a new group of people that are going to be paving the way literally for the culture because music is music is culture. So um, yeah, it was a good day. <laughs> Congratulations and congrats. Honesty there uh, in answering the question. Curious to to know from you as well. Just going back to coaching a little bit. What advice would you give to anyone that is entering the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and wants to assume that type of role within an organization? Your success literally depends on your aptitude to hold a couple of things in tension. One of it is the fact that you yourself are part of a system you're trying to fix. So you have to recognize that. So you may be subject to the very things that you're trying to fix. And so you have to hold space for that. The other space and the other tension you have to hold is that this work, you know, and when we say it's hard, everyone's like, oh, blah, 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 C-suite, blah, blah, blah. And I say, you know what? Walk a day in our shoes. The level of emotional dexterity, safe space holding that you have to do, because you think about where the pain of an organization pools. It doesn't pool in HR. It certainly doesn't pool with your supervisor. It pools most assuredly with the person who's raised their hand to be the chief diversity or the, the diversity champion. Mm. Because just innately, that person is communicating that I'm here for you and I'm creating a safe space. And so that person has to then hold and figure out what to do with that pain and then be of service to various constituencies. It's one of the most, it's up there in terms of one of the most complicated jobs. Now, what the media and what the disservice has been, and I think it's getting better because, you know, the Wall Street Journal just wrote an article about it's the hottest job in America. And I think that did a service of telling people the difficulties of it because most people assume it's CSR, it's a PR, it's a job that was born of PR panic mm. or reactive, mm. you know, and I'm speaking, I'm using uh, quotes from Jesse Williams who received our all-star award in 2017. And he said, when you hire a diversity professional officer, you have to give them all the keys, not just some. Because if you don't, they'll be toothless. And he said toothless. And I just had that image of like toothless in a meeting. And it's mm. not pretty. Mm. And he said the job is born of PR panic or reactionary. He was speaking the truth. And he did so in a room that had probably like 25 diversity champions. And we were texting each other like, did he just say that? 
I was like, God, give it, <laughs> give it a moment. Give it a moment. Right. He's taking us to the promised land. I promise you. <laughs> I, I, I preview the speed. Just, just stick with him. But I think what he was saying is he was speaking to those that employ the chief diversity champions to say, you know, this is what you have to do to make sure that person is successful. I saw it a different way, mm. you know, but you know, in advertising, we're used to things that are like sugar-coated and he was just like, nah, like, you know how it is. like, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna give it to you straight, no chaser. So that was a pivotal night. And I think a lot of us who do the work felt seen and also felt like if people, the right people in that room listened, the next steps for us will be a little bit easier. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Fun question. I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, give me top three apps that you use on your phone. Can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Easy breezy. Okay. So top three, the pattern. It is a astrology app. I have them all in. Let me, let me just look. So I make sure. Okay. So I can just tell Uber. That's real. Yeah. Even with the outside not opening up, Uber is my jam. And the next one is Inc., which is a app that you can immediately send thank you cards with photos. Oh, wow. So oh, since my niece was born, I have sent a calendar out to a, a group of people, family and friends, that features a picture of her every month. So since she was she's five now, mm. since she was two months old, there's a group of people out in the world that have a picture of her for every month of her life since 2015. Wow. Um, so Inc., Uber, and The Pattern. There you Pretty go. cool. There's wow. more. I have like six more, but I'll just stick with those three. You, you know, you, you knew them. You said easy. I think maybe, Carol, we should open it up to like six or five in the future. So. Okay, so Hulu. Oh, there, there we go. All right. I mean, one more. Give us one more. One more. Okay, hold on, hold on. Oh. What's your favorite show on Hulu? Um, Real Talk. Okay, the... The public answer will be Lovecraft Country. Great. The answer I want nobody to know, but I'm going to say on the podcast is every murder, death, kill show you can think of. Okay. <laughs> so like, Dateline hey. NBC. That's real. Um, that, that's real too. That's real. Eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People will never guess that. They'll be like, oh, you watch documentaries on racial equity. I'm like, okay. Um, actually, I watched... You know, I just want to be human. I think, you know, you can craft an idea of what you think someone, but the beautiful thing about getting to that space of diversity and true equity is when people can be completely authentic. And I remember being on a panel a couple of years ago and someone said, what are you reading? And so immediately I was like, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, in my mind, what came out was TMZ and Bossup and the whole place went crazy. (laughs) Because they were like, what? You know, it was just unexpected. So That's awesome. I just keep it real. That's great. Well, Tiffany R. Warren, I want to say thank you for it's saying over? thank you. Thank you. No! For, thank you for saying yes to hanging out with us today. Nice! As you looked at the invite a few times. It can't uh, be over. Come on. Is there a part two? Tiffany, there's always a part two. And you, <laughs> and you can and you can come back and we'd love to hang out with you again when you talk a little bit about uh, what it's like after you've uh, settled in for a little bit. You know what? We're saying, okay. Let's make a date for like a year. From now. Love it. Love and it. Come back and do part two. 
I love it. And and is that, is that a is that a bet? We could do that. We could do that, and uh, and eventually one day too, we'll all be together. We could say, yeah, you guys got the scoop. Like, listen, you're the first media I'm talking to since the big announcement. So, uh, listen, we're, we're grateful, Tiffany. A lot of our listeners love to sort of follow and stay in touch. What's a, what's a great way our listeners can can sort of follow you? So just Twitter, because, you know, my Instagram is private and I keep it that way because, you know, it's my family and my friends and you got to keep something, you know, close to you. So Twitter is really the best form in LinkedIn. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. We're delighted. And all you listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. And thank you for spending time with us. You can find us where you find all of your audio and video. Just search for Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thank you.